0: Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Stanford, English professor at UL Lafayette and director of the Writing Center on campus. Nicole earned a Ph.D. in composition from the City University of New York with a focus on pedagogy and power theory. She published a book in 2015 called Good God, But You Smart, Language Prejudice in Upwardly Mobile Cajuns. Nicole is currently writing a book called Teaching Kids Productive Descent," geared towards parents and educators. When I met Nicole, I was fascinated with her theory of teaching children skills on respectful negotiation so that they can learn to participate in society productively. Nicole Stanford Welcome to Discover Lafayette and for sharing your journey in English and teaching us all how to communicate better.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, so you you grew up here. If you'll tell me about your background and what led you to be an English professor.
1: Well, I got to UL, and my grandpa had convinced me to go into occupational therapy because there's a lot of money there. Mm -hmm. I looked at the curriculum. There were no English classes, and I just switched to being an English major, and I was... um, Pretty good at it, and uh, that's how I started. And then I became fascinated with, uh-huh. you know, understanding um, systemic failure. Why do so many students fail? Why do so many students of one demographic, demographic fail, and others don't? And so I started looking into things like that.
0: Were you always one of those kids that really loved English? Were you a reader? I was just
1: good at it. I did not like school. I don't know how I have a PhD. I've got four <laughs> degrees, and I hate school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there you are in school yeah. every day.
1: Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> so I feel for all the students, and I feel for my teachers who I train, and, mm. you, you know, we figure out ways well, to make school
0: interesting. I did stalk you online, and I saw that the kids <laughs> can grade their teachers, and looks like they, they say you listen to them, they, they listen to you, um. and if they try hard, they can do well. So you must have a connection with the the students. Oh, thank you, thank you. So what what made you go to New York? Was that a special program there at the City University of New York? It
1: is, that's where my field began, uh, teaching composition theory to, well, this is, you know, to get into like some political backstory, a little of the dark side of school. The composition classroom was invented because minorities were allowed into colleges. And um, they had a very different way of communicating and writing. And it, it was—we um, needed to send special forces in there to, you know, train the the dirty heathens and clean them up and help them to be a little more American. Mm-hmm. And this is because we were looking at immigrants and people who we had internally colonized. So that's where I get into the power theory and yeah. language prejudice.
0: Yeah. So your first book, um, Good God, But You Smart— language prejudice, and upperly mobile Cajuns. I read a little bit about that, and you were talking about how people will put on a face to be mainstream and a voice, but then I guess we default to how we grew up. But is that part of what you learned, that people, all these different cultures have different ways of communicating, but yet there is a mainstream way we're expected to yeah, speak, right? Yeah,
1: we'll do what it takes to, uh, to get a good job and to make money and provide for our families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But you wrote a whole book on that. I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's dark and it's politically dark. I'll get into it. Education was invented to control literacy, not to control. It's, it's to control our interpretations of literacy, hey, this is not like. spread literacy.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And um, composition was invented to control, not, um, not to make sure that the students who enter would be more literate, but to make sure that they're interpreting our canonical text in the appropriate way and recognize who's in power and we keep class divided the way it is and and if you are not able to acquire these thinking habits or, or conform to them you fail and you're not allowed to progress in your degree mm-hmm. and and maybe you're able to get money but now you're not able to participate in decision making in the political process you get a vote but you never get to be someone who lobbies or rises to a position of power where you get to sit at the table where the decisions are made mm-hmm. So that's what I look at. Who is excluded from the dialogue through the structure of our universities and education and who is allowed to progress on to decision-making? Because I also have studied student resistance this whole time and acts of resistance through language transgression and how people push back and how it shows up in our mainstream language evolution. Mm -hmm. and. That is what led me into studying the dissent that happens in classrooms and in families. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wrote myself into a corner in my last book because I thought, if I want to change the world, let me look at how we teach class. But um, I I realized—well, as I did the research, I found that families have more power than any institution. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so if we want to—if we want to shape the future— We need to look at the practices happening at home. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world.
0: And Nicole, it seems um, so—just being a mother of two girls, I don't know if it's the same thing. It wasn't necessarily dissent, but we noticed when the girls were making a jump forward, maybe physically or emotionally, then they would kind of back up. It's like they would default back to behavior that they had when they were younger. And we could tell they must be about to be on an emotional jumpstart because their lives were moving forward, but they were maybe pulling back. And I don't know if you've seen that with your three children, but you can watch them. And once you have one, you kind of know, let me watch for this and the other.
1: Absolutely. It's been charted in brain studies. Really? And they call call it Wonder Weeks in in a certain book where they've seen that— before a child masters a new skill, they go through a period of brain disorganization mm-hmm. where they have to, like, tear down the things that no longer work for them and then rebuild it. And it's during that phase when they're preparing to have a big leap forward that they they'll kind of revert. Regress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
0: don't know if it's mm-hmm. regression, but they're coping. They'll revert, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So you obviously understand our language and also structures in society. And so— as I said in the opening, one of the things I was fascinated about with you is that you're so well-spoken and calm and kind, but you're talking about dissent in society in so many ways. So um, I love the the topic of your book. If you want to just jump into that about what made you decide to write this book.
1: Oh yeah, thank you. Well, um, yeah, so the new book that I'm writing, Teaching Kids uh, Productive Dissent, my entry point for that was I can't think of a single moment that I arrived at this. But I know that I had been looking at dissent for a long time, and I thought, well, in order for us to have a healthy democracy, we need Mm -hmm. to have healthy dissent. Mm -hmm. And I had been studying in classrooms all these ways that we had unhealthy dissent. Right. And and unproductive, like venting or just acts of rebellion that led to no good, Mm -hmm. you know, nothing good. So I thought, let me find a good parenting book to figure out how to train my kids up from early on. And everything I read um, in the parenting literature was about either how to force your children to obey you or how to manipulate them into obeying you. That was, you know— the forcing the authoritarian was kind of the right leaning books and the left leaning books tended to be manipulative using cognitive behavioral tricks mm-hmm. or permissive and so they all were in a win lose kind of scenario not a win win mm-hmm. let's find how a way that we can all negotiate and all win And, and of course, I wasn't looking at this when my children were babies. No. This is when we entered the toddler years, and I thought, I'm seeing some healthy dissent here. I want that. Mm -hmm. That's healthy for a political process. What do I do with it? And what I came to see was learning to dissent is as natural as learning to walk. And when our kids take their first walks, their first steps, we don't say—you know, if they fall down and break something, we don't say, (laughs) don't ever do that again. I'm going to go read a book and learn how to keep yeah. you from ever trying to yeah. walk again. You clap. And, and from now, yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> or you say, it's okay, you broke something, but it's okay. And from then on, you make it—you you make it their environment safe for them to practice mm-hmm. walking. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with dissent and decisions and conflict. Allow it, but allow toddler-appropriate decisions, which I'm sure you've heard of, and, and make it safe for them to learn to dissent and teach them where they can dissent and where they cannot dissent. Like, you know, you wouldn't let your kids— crawl around at a funeral, and same thing, at a funeral, if they start having a tantrum, that's not a place where you're going to stop and negotiate. Mm -hmm. You just take that kid out, you know. Um, Another thing is don't ever try teaching dissent when they're not calm. You know, I always think in terms of you can't access your higher faculties if you're in a brainstem reflex because the higher, you know, if you've ever read any of those books— you're not going to be able to think about your true values mm-hmm. when you're set off.
0: When the lizard brain is operating, Absolutely, right? absolutely yeah. Right. I'm thinking about my growing up. I mean, it was a different generation, but children were supposed to be seen and not heard. So this mm-hmm. is a totally different approach to, you know, molding young people, little ones, to be productive citizens that can speak their mind without insulting yeah. others and— but also protecting their own.
1: Yeah, wants and if you and think needs. about the way that you were raised, if if you were looking at the political model that that should produce, it's just obedient. Yeah. It's a dictatorship.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, fear. Mm-hmm.
1: No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, and you didn't do that. Look at you, you know, you're you're politically active and you have thoughts and opinions of your own. But that kind of if you look systemically at that kind of parenting model, it's intended to produce mm-hmm. a generation that says yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Exactly, it's military. You know, mm-hmm. and you need military at times, but um, those are for times when we have emergencies and when we need to have um, trained responses. But otherwise, when we need, it's time for productive discussions mm-hmm. and decision making. That's when we need to be um, not saying yes, ma'am, and yes, right.
0: Sir. Right. So I was reading some of your notes, um, we're generally taught to avoid or crush moments of conflict rather than hear each other out and reach a win-win solution. Mm-hmm. And so I think being molded in a different generation, you know, I, I was telling you that before we started taping, I, I have problems sometimes with conflict because it just is uncomfortable. But yet there are times when you have to stand up and say, this is wrong. Yeah. And here's why.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah. have your
0: ducks in a row, but not just let somebody steamroll over you.
1: Yeah, and, and that's what
0: you're teaching your children, and you want to teach others.
1: And um, you think about what a what a grip that has on you, your early childhood programming, and how that can affect you for the rest of your mm-hmm, life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So where are you in the book? I know you've got uh, uh, something at the main library downtown teaching kids productive dissent. Are uh, my notes right? October ninth.
1: Yes, Six right. Yeah, Six to seven downtown.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's going to be a packed house. People probably want to come here.
1: <laughs> I hope so. What Thanks. your thoughts
0: are, you know. I've drafted the whole book, but I need to reorganize a few chapters before I'm ready to submit it for
1: publication. And right now it's at that point where I'm ready to release it to crowds, you know, begin mm-hmm. presenting to the public and get some feedback. Also get some criticism and see, you know, where are my gaps and or what would it be helpful to foreground, things mm-hmm. like that.
0: When you teach these classes or when you have a group meeting, do people give you, like, what if this happened? Do you have scenarios that you think about yeah. in your book, like some common scenarios that parents may have with their children?
1: Yeah, I like to—and when I give workshops, I like to have um, the parents think about what's a current scenario that's mm-hmm. just, like, kind of kicking your butt right now with your kids. Mm-hmm. and And then we'll workshop that together and figure out new pathways.
0: So what kind of things come up? Like, what are some common things that people struggle with?
1: Oh, let's see. Um, I can tell you one of mine. My daughter is. It will say, "Okay, I'll do it," and I can see in her attitude that she doesn't want to do it. And you know that's different from my youngest son, who is very, will very clearly say, "I do not want to do that." Mm-hmm. And so with her, you know, you get children on all parts of the spectrum. So with with her, I've had to encourage her to stand up for herself more because she wants to be a peacekeeper. Mm -hmm. She's one of those kids who can sense when anyone is upset and she feels like it's her job to fix it. Mm -hmm. So she is one who I, I have to say, I think you might disagree with me. And I appreciate that you're willing to do that, but will you take some time to think about it and see if you have a better idea, something that could work for both of us and come back to me? Conversation's still open. And she does? And she does sometimes. A lot of times she'll come back, and this is the phrase they're used to from me. I say, uh, if you can make a compelling case, I'm willing to hear you out. But she'll come back and say, I don't have a compelling case. I'm just
0: going to do it the way you said. (laughs) At her age? I mean, yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm thinking, like, what are some solutions? If they don't want to make their bed, well, just don't put the sheets on the bed, right? (laughs) <laughs> thinking about my my younger daughter.
1: I'm oh, kidding uh, but also
0: not really. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: I know that's one of those uh, let's see. That is a thing you can use that would work. Don't put the sheets on the bed. Absolutely. But um if you it it works in a crunch and do it. Do it in a crunch. Mm-hmm. But if you have the time and you have the energy, don't do this if you don't have the time and the energy. There you know like I said there are times it's appropriate to consider negotiation and times that you are not going to have the calm for it, so don't go mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. But I would say something like, here's my problem. I need you to put the, you know, I need you to make your bed, and I see that you're not making it. Um, do, is there a reason? Is there something that we that you need support with that I can provide for you? And if not, I'm going to need you to make that bed.
0: Mm-hmm. Every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but how do you start small? Like, how do you start small and lead to bigger Impacts, you know. I was reading some things, and I even saw something you had on your Facebook. Like people look back and think about what they could have done in the past to make a change. Oh, but yeah. Very few of us think about small changes we can make today that don't have a huge impact on so many people. But it's just—is that how you teach? Also, like there are small things you can do as you're yeah, working with the yes. kids.
1: Yeah, yes, I like to foreground those things actually because um, it is. Let me say, there's a lot of emotional charge around parenting. So when I go in talking about parenting or if I do consultations with a a school or with a family, um, I've had— so many years to think about these things and other people have been devoting their years to other things so i'm not i know we were raised in the same system and whatever they're doing i'm not judging Mm because that's exactly where i would be if i had been dedicating my times whatever they're dedicating their time to you know that's a reason that i like to foreground the easy things i understand where we're coming from so one thing i like to say is um Whatever emotion they're feeling, that's the right emotion to feel. And it seems like a detour or a wrong, you know, like what does that have to do with dissent? But a lot of times the emotional charge that comes up in a situation first can be avoided or just diffused so quickly just by acknowledging that you see the emotion on their face. So this is something I've been studying in in Mm -hmm. pedagogy looks like the biological function of emotion in humans and primates is just to be mirrored just to be acknowledged mm-hmm. by somebody else and then it's just going to disappear it's just going to evaporate even anger because anger is meant to keep us from uh, escalating to blows so you're supposed to have a big show of anger on your face your your voice should get louder and more intimidating so that the other person can see your signals and back down, and then you come mm-hmm. back to it later. Mm-hmm. So no one has to get hurt. So, the same way, when you see your kids getting upset, I would say one of the most effective things you can do is just say, I see that you're getting upset about this. Do you need some time? Or you seem sad. Do you feel, do you need a hug?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or is something hurting? Does your tummy hurt? You know, and just like check. So, I call that triaging. And that's one of the number one ways to, um, very smoothly move through conflict, show some empathy for where the other person is coming from, mm-hmm. and then imagine the kind of person they're going to be in the future. Yeah. As they are negotiating with other people or they see someone get hurt, the first thing they're going to do is show human compassion and then get to the
0: problem. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. I love it. I love it. I have friends that'll say, you know, and I, I guess they maybe. Have learned more about monitoring themselves, but they won't respond if they're really angry. It's like they know mm-hmm. to back mm-hmm. up and just say, we, "We we talk later." That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. There's also this long-term study
1: called Adverse Childhood Experiences that mm-hmm. was conducted by the CDC. Have you heard of this? Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And they showed that um, from four to six adverse childhood experiences will result will likely result in some kind of chronic illness as an adult. But the one mitigating factor across the board, and, and I'm, I'm speaking in, in, in very general terms here. They, have, mm-hmm. they get more specific. But the one mitigating factor is one stable adult telling a child, I would feel the same way you feel. Or whatever you feel is the right thing to feel. Giving them permission to feel their feelings so that it passes on through. It yeah. doesn't become a trauma. doesn't mm-hmm. get stuck. Something they're trying to repress.
0: So they're validated.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: And then learning. Here's still, permission to, to feel your
1: feelings, and now let's move on and
0: still yeah. do the hard work. Right. This is just so fascinating. Do you, do you pull this in with your teaching at UL, yeah. some of you do with the students?
1: Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, I um, train my tutors in the writing lab to do that. I say we triage. You mm-hmm. know, when a student comes in panicking and we're about to tutor them on a writing project, the first thing we're going to do is acknowledge whatever emotions they feel, whatever panic, mirror it in our facial expressions, even our body language. And then when we get to a point of calm, then we move forward with the tutoring.
0: hmm this seems like so much more than just English. Like what you're, mm-hmm. you know, it's really psychology and so many different things that you're rolling in.
1: Yeah, I guess it could to be. To your teaching. In my field, we kind of have to keep a, you know, a toe in a, a lot of fields mm-hmm. to keep, you know, keep abreast of the latest literature.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long have you been at UL?
1: This is my 4th year at UL. Yeah, I just uh I but I I was an adjunct there years ago before I got mm-hmm. my PhD uh-huh. and I I got my first
0: degree from there. So,
1: you has a special place I got. in my heart.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything you else you wanted to get out about the book like the main what you think people should look for, you know, that they'll get out of your your writings? Just-
1: yeah, actually I'll be going into this in the um at the library talk. Um I I'm what I think, a model of discipline that I propose. So I'll talk about a model of how to harness conflict and teach kids to use it well, um, how we can channel everything towards problem-solving, you know. And so another example of that is while you're problem-solving, you don't just try to think of um, the kid who got hurt or only the kid who did the worst thing. The, or the kid who, who offended somebody, you look at everyone in the room and say, what's everyone's needs? You know, what, what do we need to look at here and, meet, and find a way to meet everyone's needs? So I'll talk about the problem-solving model that I use for handling conflict, and then I'll talk about a discipline model mm-hmm. for when someone is not able to comply. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, and, and here we, to get a little political again, I think that timeouts are based on the prison industrial complex model that we have right now. And, you know, it's like if you take a murderer, that's this. I'm using an extreme example. But, you know, a family will say, you know, my loved one was murdered and now the murderer is in jail. Justice has been served. But. What was the problem in the original? You know, what were the original problems? The murderer. Why did he murder somebody? And his art is that being addressed? Is he sitting and thinking about what he did? Is that helping him to solve his problems in another way? And the family who lost their loved one. Maybe this is someone who provided money for them, or you know, a very essential person. And is their problem being addressed now? So um, it's not probably. They're mm-hmm. heartbroken. They're trying to find ways to cobble funds. Yeah. So when we when I handle discipline with children, we we look at everyone in the room, What when, and even innocent bystanders. Mm-hmm. Does something need to be addressed for them as well?
0: Mm-hmm. I have a question about a um, way to discipline. Now, we we never really did timeout. We found that was kind of tough, but I have two daughters. We would take Barbies, and they would have to go to timeout. Ah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it was very effective. I've never heard of, of yes. doing that for timeout. I love that. Because Barbies were, you know, everything revolved around Barbie. Yeah. And then the worst, we'd be in the car, and my girls are seven years apart, but you know, they'd fight some. And I would stop the car and they would have to hold hands and sing kumbaya <laughs> until they stopped. And they hated it. I love kumbaya. It's kind of my life, you know. But I would just stop the car and say, Well, here we are. <laughs> And the uh, older one in particular still remembers that. She's oh like, man. I hate kumbaya. <laughs> you know
1: what? That's a skill. That's a skill, too. That's something that your your daughters will be able to do now. When they're in a tense situation mm-hmm. and they need to show a peaceful facade, they'll be able to do that. Even. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I won't come down on very many forms of discipline mm-hmm. because it all ends up serving a, some kind of purpose. There, no. Even, you know, my students, when they'll— kind of try to fake something in an assignment. Oh, no. If I catch it happening, I'll say, listen, I hate it when you waste my time. So if you are going to BS something, mm-hmm. do it well. That's uh-huh. a skill you need to have at some point. Know how to BS when you're in a job interview or something like mm-hmm. that. But if you're going to do it in my class, make it entertaining for me <laughs> or do it so well that I can't tell.
0: <laughs> oh, are, are your exams written? Like, is that typically or do they? Yeah. You know? Yeah, they write papers mainly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, with the, do you bring all this into the classroom, though? Like, Well, there's two different this.
1: levels. You know, when I teach a freshman composition mm-hmm. course, that's when I'm talking about BSing. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those are the students who are more likely. When I teach a graduate course or when I'm training the teachers, then we're bringing in all these models right. as they pertain to students in class. Yeah.
0: Have you seen artificial intelligence creeping into some of the papers? Or do you I know even yet. if it is? I mean, how do you figure yet.
1: out? And my my yeah, how do we find out? A lot of a lot of teachers have said that they have seen it, and once again, I my position on it's going to be similar to B.S.ing. I'm going to say that's mm-hmm. the skill you'll need at some point to be able to use AI. Do it, but do it well, and do it within these parameters. Here are the ethics in our classroom, and if you go beyond this, then mm-hmm. there will be
0: penalties. Because I guess it's plagiarizing when you look at it. It's just Ripping off
1: if they it's take not it a work. but if that, they run a, a concept through it, then that changes things. If they cite it in their work, cited oh, okay. page, you know, if they say I also used AI for this, if it's not permitted in that class, then that then that it would be considered plagiarism. Mm-hmm. But if a teacher is permitting it, as long as they do it with ethics, it's fine
0: because you can learn from it. I mean, it's such a great way to learn.
1: Yeah, and uh-huh. it it really it seems like a very helpful technology to use in the future. It seems good
0: for worker training. Right. You know? Right. Jason Sikor is here taping our show, and I see him nodding. We, we bring up AI quite a bit. He's computer guru. and <laughs>
2: <laughs> You said some really interesting things. Healthy dissent. So that sparked all sorts of thoughts in my head. The first one that came up was... I'd heard at one point the most patriotic thing that you can do for your country is question the people in charge.
1: Mm.
2: Is that kind of along those same lines? Exactly.
1: And I would say our country was built on amazing acts of dissent that we're mm-hmm. very proud of, mm-hmm. you know, stepping away from the British Empire and the Boston Tea Party and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um And we revere those people, but we'll quash people who try to do that now or call them stupid or idiot, call them names. And that's one thing I look at when it comes to unproductive dissent. Um, When people do try to make a statement, are they going in an unproductive direction? So there are two things here. How do we respond to that? Are we making fun of people for trying to dissent? Hmm. You know, let's take a look at that. Why are we doing that? Why are we making fun of people who protest? That's one thing that Mm -hmm. our nation's built on. Um, and then, secondly, why do people use outmoded forms of protest? That's unhealthy sometimes. Oh, I that's think fair. you know, people who are like, um, "Let's have a march, like we do every year, mm-hmm. to raise awareness about blah blah blah." Is that really accomplishing anything? Or is everyone bored of it now and going, "Oh, those those people, it doesn't they're, change they're anything. Again. It's status yes. quo." You uh-huh. know, now it's just a part of what we do every day, every mm-hmm. every year.
2: No, that that's fair. At what point does descent become dangerous? Cause it seems like maybe something like a flat earth theory is dangerous.
1: Hmm. I wouldn't say any thinking is dissenting. It would only be acts that would be considered dissent, you know, so thinking you can go a lot of places in your mind and you're just trying out different rubrics in your mind, you know, to see what works out. So I wouldn't be I wouldn't consider any of that dissent. I would consider that healthy, critical thinking. I think it's really great to put your mind in different paradigms and try things out.
2: Okay, so the dissent Mm -hmm. is the action and then we can determine if the action has a positive or negative result
0: at that point. I'm picturing January 6th. That's
2: kind of kind of what and I thought that, as you well. Know,
0: that was dissent, but it wasn't productive to me. I mean, people were hurt. Murdered. Didn't get anything accomplished. No, but it was, people were just so angry. They felt they had no voice. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I don't like to get involved without getting into that discussion. That was incredibly scary to me to watch yeah, that dissent. Because yeah. people felt, I think they didn't have a voice. And on the other hand, you know, it was just, it was a major issue mm-hmm. for our our, um, our whole country and the world, people watching yeah. that.
1: That's a hard one. I haven't spent a lot of time really thinking about that, but my initial analysis of it would be that there has, we've had a trend. You know, it was made legal for our country to propagandize its own citizens a while back. And so we all know that we're never getting the true story. Mm-hmm. We're, we've caught on to that at this point. And actually, Jason, like I mentioned to you earlier, in the absence of of accurate communication, we will make up stories. Yeah. And so when I saw that happening, I thought that's that's. One of the consequences mm-hmm. of a lot of the shadiness we've gotten from our own government, from them withholding things from us, people are making up their own stories mm-hmm. and responding to it. And, you know, whether it's right or wrong, um, there's—
0: It's how they feel. It, it's yep.
1: it's a systemic error. Mm-hmm. And I would look at, you know, how people behaved in the pandemic the same way, the way they responded. People had a lot of suspicions, and I think a lot of those suspicions were a result of the way our government has failed to share information with us in the past.
0: And And that is what I hear from people, Nicole. Mm -hmm. They'll say, well, they knew at some point that these things weren't working, Mm -hmm. but we were told just to keep on. And so then they don't trust anything they hear now. It's a shutdown, you know.
1: Yeah, and I would say a lot of it still remains to be seen, you know. And um, I was one of those citizens who was like, well, I'm happy to comply, but I do wish there were better communication. I, I wish that I could trust the studies that are coming out. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if I can. Right,
0: right.
2: Example on uh, for January 6th, I, as much as I don't agree with it, it seems like that was the necessary outcome of all of this anyway, right? Something had to happen in order for people to say, we're not going to we're not going to put up with this anymore. Like it's almost inherent in in what's going on. If if there is no trust and it's proven that there can't be any trust, the only outcome is some action that some people aren't going to like. Again, not that I'm and this, this this is like a whole nother live stream that we could do for, yeah. for hours on end. Um, but I do like the idea of you need to challenge things right we wouldn't have mm-hmm. scientific progress if we weren't challenging things absolutely mm-hmm, absolutely
1: right? and no country can ever be strong without strong dissenters Yeah, mm-hmm. and we need to be grateful for the people who stand up and disagree about things and even if they end up being wrong I'm grateful that we get to we get to hear opposing yeah. views
0: and then you f- figure out dialogue. what you think yeah. you can figure out for yourself
1: One—and where where I—where all my red flags go up regarding political discussions is where dialogue is crushed, Mm -hmm. you know, and where people are shamed for asking questions. That's where I'm like, oh, there is a conspiracy there for sure. If we're being shamed for asking questions, they are definitely keeping secrets. Yeah.
2: Like that. Well, intent and balance, I think, are two words that— we always need to come back into this, right? Is this a balanced conversation? What is your intent behind it? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we shift gears a little bit and talk about education as a form of control?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, we can. What would you like to know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, when, you, when you, you said that, and I know I have to go back and do some editing, so some of that might get mm-hmm. cut out. But something like this is fascinating, right? Because we see history change a little bit over time. Um, uh-huh. To to better fit the narrative of the people mm-hmm, in charge, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I like this idea that we're only given the things to kind of keep us in a certain box.
1: Yes, yes, and that's uh, I think w- what I wrote in my first book was. And first, let me tell you, here's my elevator blurb for the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, the the victors wrote the history books, and then they wrote the grammar books. Uh,
0: okay. I see.
1: So they allow certain people to graduate and get to those policy making positions and other people who don't speak the correct language because they weren't born into the correct family, mm-hmm. which is aristocracy. They are not allowed to graduate and they have to go into manual labor or you know something else, and they can still make money, but they're not allowed to persist mm-hmm. participate in democracy with uh, well, the the lobbying. They can vote, but they don't get to do the lobbying and the decision making. Interesting. Okay, does that make sense? It, it, yeah, It
2: does. So, somebody who's a product of public schools, grew up in the country in Michigan. What other option do I have, though, other than this kind of government-overseen public education that I'm a part of?
1: Oh, let's see. Okay, so when it comes to the um, the power structure of the education system, all edu- there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as free education. Mm-hmm. Even though it's free, it's— um, it always serves the interests of someone so we look at who created the education system who structured it well it was wealthy capitalists the current version of of education that we have was structured by wealthy capitalists in the last century the um oh i was going to call them robber barons but what's the better <laughs> name for them <laughs> rockefeller carnegie yeah. oh, you know
0: yeah
1: yeah the, yeah um Capitalist, so yeah. the yeah um, and not that capitalism is wrong, but, you know, the version of it that they were using. They wanted workers who had certain habits of mind who would graduate from high school and be able be able to seamlessly integrate into the economy that they wanted. So it was all worker training. So if you look at what we have now, what it's been splitting into is it's still worker fl- training that reflects our economy. And you, what I'm seeing now, and I didn't write this in the book. I wrote a little bit of it. But we are have uh, we're splitting into we're losing the middle class. So we have affluent schools um, and private school private schools probably go would still be the middle class, but the affluent schools that are training students to become CEOs, they have a very different pedagogy teaching model oh. from the poorer schools oh. because those they're the worker training is different. Mm-hmm. So the ones in the lower class schools are being trained for an obedience model, not even. They don't always have to get the right answers. They just need to follow instructions well. That's what they get rewarded for. And the higher up you go, they are—this is very interesting. The middle-class school uh, students, they are rewarded for following instructions and for getting the right answer. And you go all the way up, and those students don't have to get a right answer. They need to reach consensus in the classroom, does everyone agree on this answer that this math problem came out to this? Oh. You know, because Even it's about. It's wrong? It, it could be right, it could be wrong, but <laughs> they are meant to be CEOs and world leaders. Uh-huh. And so what they need to win is agreement yeah. from other leaders of the of, um, you know, their classes. So to go back to your question, um, we're in transition right now, and we've had some very heavy investments from, they're always from the wealthiest capitalists Mm -hmm. because they are the ones who own our schools. Well, well, we pay for it, but they're the ones who pay for the renovations to our schools. Uh, I mean, renovations and curricula, not the actual buildings. So, um, we've got that happening. And then we have this new freelance sector because so many families are opting out in homeschooling. Mm And um, we're training up a whole new class to work remotely and pay for their own tools and stuff like that. All these things fit perfectly into our current economy. So we're going to have a really strong um, upper class, uh, elites, mm. a very broad, um, lower, like, working class than the freelancers. And everyone who doesn't make it in schools, the lower class schools, they're pipelined into this, this I'm, I'm painting, you know, with broad brushstrokes here, yeah. you know, so it sounds very dark, but they're pipelined into the military or the prison system um. where we also have cheap labor happening, you know, in both of
0: those. You think the, the homeschooling trend, um, I mean, are your children, do, do you homeschool? Yeah, I, homeschool. I, I thought I'd read that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think about them being trained, just they, they can think more independently and work independently. Right.
1: Yeah. 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 And it, it has its pros and it has its cons. Yeah. It so seems like a the, good thing in many And because ways. all education is a business model, you can homeschool at, at home and copy public schools precisely and still train your students for that. I mean, your kids for that. Students slash kids. <laughs> so what my Short co-op people. does is we train our students for a business co-op model. Where they have to vote on all their decisions. Oh. uh uh-huh. And I consider myself their consultant, and uh-huh. I say, um, I'll tell you what you need to make to pass the ACT. To, you know, based on my assessment, you all seem a little weak in this area. Um, my recommendations are we go after American literature or British literature this semester— can you have a discussion and uh, on I'll, uh, in five minutes I'll, or, or ten minutes we'll do a vote, mm-hmm. something like that, you know. And so they all have their discussion then we do a vote.
0: And they reach a consensus uh-huh. like yeah, you're talking do. about the upper level
1: yeah. type yeah. of education. Yeah, we do that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But and they own
0: what they voted on. That
1: way, yeah. And what I like about the business co-op model is it it can fit very seamlessly into our current capitalist system, where on the outside they interact with the rest of the world just as is, mm-hmm. but on the inside they can have the kind of conditions that I would want for my children.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow, this is fascinating. <laughs> it's it's all right up my alley, and I could sit here for another hour and get into other things that mm-hmm. you've said. I think more importantly, how do people? What, what are the names of your books? How do people find them? How do people get more information about you?
1: Oh, yes. Thank you. Well, my the first book is Good God, But You Smart, Language, Prejudice, and Upwardly Mobile Cajuns. And that comes from something my grandpa said to me because he—because of his— Personal prejudice against himself. He was such oh. an intelligent man. He was mm-hmm. bilingual. He hitchhiked his way to to get an MBA at LSU. He was a very successful businessman, but he was so ashamed of being Cajun mm-hmm. that when he saw and heard, you know, could hear my pretty good standard English accent, he um, he thought I was just better than him, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, Did you forget how smart you are? <laughs> Um, so that's, that's available on Amazon. That's also at the public library downtown. Okay. And the book that I'm writing now isn't available anywhere except in my mind. Okay, fair but enough. But anyone is welcome to uh, come to the talk on October 9th. And, um,
0: downtown library. Yeah, downtown six library, 6 to 7. To seven.
1: Mm-hmm. That'll be the second floor meeting room. So you come okay. up the stairs or the elevator and bare left and you'll find us.
0: And that book is called The Book in Progress, Teaching Kids. Productive dissent.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I have I to decide to what's going to come after the colon things. Uh-huh, you yes. know something <laughs> like raising <laughs> a generation for social change or something like that. <laughs> you know,
2: <laughs> uh, I love it. Yeah, maybe we'd have to have her on a second time because I know we're getting towards time, and I could probably go for another hour. This is such Did you want to know? Had, oh, conversation. I know, it's isn't beautiful. it? A, yeah,
1: we, we're going all over. Yeah, yeah. You wanted to know about um, how schools control literacy. That's something you were asking earlier. Yes. So I can tell you, literacy rates in the United States at the time that public education was instituted, literacy rates were very high. So public schools were not instituted to produce literacy, but to control literacy, to control how people were interpreting things. And in the composition classroom, this is what we still do. We still teach our students um, you know, when you write a paper, you don't get to quote your grandpa. You don't get to use the wisdom of your your family, mm-hmm. your elders. You don't get to quote from your church or your. you don't get to use any of these values. You can only use our values, which are in these books at the library, these, these vetted sources. Um. You understand? And so we control what knowledge can be learned and what knowledge can be made it's a very gate kept kind mm-hmm. of um society
0: that makes sense
2: mm-hmm.
0: man this is fascinating i know especially when you think about the libraries and mm. current trends about censoring you know what people yeah. can see but i don't want to get into that because mm-hmm. that's a loaded question but yeah i never thought about it like this Mm -hmm. Because if you can only read certain things, that's all you're going to think is out there.
1: The universities are the new priest caste, what used to happen in old societies. They protected the canonical, you know, sacred texts and taught people how to interpret them and Mm -hmm. how to apply it to their lives. And now that's what the English professors do.
2: Boy, oh boy. My,
0: I wish I could see Jason's face. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, because my, again, I'm going down a rabbit hole. I'm like, well, okay, so is this, how does this work? What does this look like? How do we do something different? And, and again, this is a <laughs> yeah. whole separate podcast. How do I break I out of this? Path that I'm on, this is what I'm supposed to do and this is what I'm doing. Maybe that was intended. Did I
1: just blow your mind? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it did. It did. And we're talking about two different things here, right? The universities, which is where a lot of my scholarship is focused, and then in homes. And the reason I'm going in the direction of children is because so much of my time was spent thinking about how to deprogram students once they got to my classroom and teach them how to think critically again because they had lost that in Mm -hmm. K through 12. And I thought, what if they never went through that programming? What if I never had to unprogram them? Mm -hmm. And that's what was so alluring to me about homeschooling my children Mm because I was like, what if I never shut their brains off in that way? And not that they shut their brains off, but they have to shut off their own curiosity and their own questions. Mm-hmm. And they're only allowed to ask the questions their teachers say they can ask.
0: At that point in yeah. time, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, man, and so, oh, so my, I think my answer would be, Jason, you're a lost cause. You're too old. But let's talk <laughs> about if you ever have
0: children. I'm just kidding. You're not a lost because <laughs> well, trying to keep this podcast going <laughs> here, yeah, Nicole. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> don't insult my guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it took me 40 years to start questioning these things, but you yeah. know, but yeah, thank you for being here and, and for, for giving me some things to think about. And Yeah, let us know when that book is done because I want to read it.
0: Oh, yes. Well, thank you so
1: much for having me. It was so great talking to you. Thank Thank you,
0: Dr. Uh, Nicole Stanford. Happy to come back. Yeah, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. You're fascinating. And we just got to know each other through a friendly way. But when I heard your passion— Can I
1: say how we—I want to just say the way Jan and I really were connected is I heard people talking about her and saying she— regardless of her position on a matter, she will listen to what you're saying and she will find a way uh, to reach a win-win situation, a win-win result. And so that's why, Jan, why I even brought that up to you. I
0: said, well, that's what I'm writing a book about. That's productive oh, dissent. I didn't even realize that. I remember mm-hmm. you said, I, I do listen. Yeah. I think during the podcast, I was always a listener, but I think we've done this now for over six years. Listening to people is so rewarding because I realize how little I know. You know what I'm saying, and especially mm-hmm. in this conversation mm-hmm. between you two. <laughs> oh,
1: thank you. Well, that
0: shows your wisdom. You yeah. know that
1: not that not that you're you know listening to what I say, but that you listen to people. Thank yeah. you. Yeah,
0: I've enjoyed this, Jason Secor, Too. Oh, yeah. Thank you, and thank you. and yeah. Raider, for allowing us to do the podcast. For our loyal listeners, thank you so much for staying with us and listening. If you um, have time, go to discoverlafayette.net. You can listen to Dr. Nicole Stanford's interview, along with other, like about 330 other interviews. Also, if you haven't subscribed, please consider subscribing to Discover Lafayette, wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jan Swift. Thank you for listening.